This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight. This being Memorial Day week in the U.S., we planned to skip the week as we usually do, but an opportunity presented itself and we wanted to bring you some information on a timely topic. As you probably know, the President of the United States has agreed to allow F-16 fighter jets to go to Ukraine. Of course, this raises a lot of questions, because we're curious. Well, we're fortunate enough to have with us retired General John Dragon Teichert to answer some of those questions. John is a recently retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General. He was the Assistant Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force International Affairs, and was responsible for worldwide international engagement on behalf of the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Space Force. He led the service's $240 billion security cooperation portfolio. Now, prior to that, John was the senior defense official and defense attache to Iraq. He has been an F-15E combat pilot, an F-22 test pilot, the commander of Joint Base Andrews, and the commander of Edwards Air Force Base, John has more than 2,000 hours in 38 different aircraft types. John, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Max, I am overjoyed to be here. Thanks for having me. We're really happy that you're going to be here and uh, talking with us about this topic. We did mention it in last week's episode. Um, And of course, we did have a lot of questions. But to set the stage, and you can tell me if I've got this right, The president didn't say anything about where the F-16s might come from. And as David Vanderhoof mentioned in last week's episode, a country with F-16s cannot simply give them to another country. That would be an export violation. So what the president did was signal that the United States would allow F-16s to be provided to Ukraine. Is that correct? Yeah, Max, it's basically correct. There was two things that President Biden said that I think are noteworthy. First of all, he lifted his opposition to the transition of F-16s to Ukraine. And then he actively said that the United States would help support the training of that F-16 capability. And so that was a major policy reversal. I think it's long overdue now, 15 months into the war. But I think ultimately it will be a substantial boost to capability to Ukraine. Okay, well, let's start out with what the F-16 could mean for Ukraine, and then we'll get into all the complexities involved in making that happen. And just as a note, I'll mention that we're not going to get into the politics of it at all. We're the airplane geeks. We're not the policy geeks or anything like that. So, so John, what would the F-16 mean for Ukraine? What are the tactical and strategic implications? What might Ukraine do with these fighters? Max, let me start with the strategic implications of this policy decision. And I think the biggest item that is associated with this is that we finally are going to be tied together as the West to Ukraine in our aviation industry and most importantly, in our military aviation capability. And to me, when you engage in security cooperation with something like an F-16, it means that you're tying yourself together to that country for 20 to 30 years. And so while it may take six months or so for us to ultimately get this capability into the hands of a trained force in Ukraine, I think that it signals that we as the West are linked in our support to Ukraine, not just for the immediate counteroffensive that we could expect any day now, 
but for the long term. And I think that is a huge strategic boost to Ukraine. And that's a perspective that I hadn't really uh, thought of before. I I was kind of viewing this as more of a short term kind of an effort. No, I mean, ultimately, if we would have made this decision a year ago that have these capabilities for now. But when I was leading the Air Force and Space Force's International Affairs Program, we saw these types of commitments as something that enabled us access, influence, partnership, and interoperability for two to three decades. And I think this provides a signal for Ukraine that the West isn't going to be fickle in our support to them, but I think it indicates an enduring commitment for the long term to supporting Ukraine and tying them into the West and certainly Western military aviation. Hmm. Well, that has a lot of implications in terms of uh, how this is set up. If if you're viewing it as a short-term thing, other than maybe training, which has to be at a certain level regardless of whether it's a short-term or long-term thing, but the logistics, the, the, the infrastructure that you create for a long-term effort is, is probably more involved. So that's, that's kind of interesting. So in terms of uh, tactical issues, what does this offer? What would this offer to Ukraine? Max, I think there's a couple of different key mission sets that an F-16 is going to help boost for Ukraine that are some of the fundamental mission sets they need to succeed in in order to win this war. The first one of those is air superiority. And that's a phrase that's thrown around a lot, but it means more than maybe people think at first glance. It means that you have freedom to attack through the air and freedom from attack from the adversary through the air as well. And so I think both its offensive and defensive capabilities is going to help provide a level of air superiority that, frankly, these eastern capabilities that they currently are burdened with in Ukraine Um, can't provide them against their fellow Eastern aircraft capabilities from Russia. And so I think that's an important component. And then I think once you get air superiority, it gives you another platform for precise long-range strike capability. And then maybe for something like Bakhmut, which we've seen as a bloody meat grinder of a conflict for eight months or so, it gives you opportunities to support forces on the ground And once you have that air cover of air superiority, then it creates a conundrum for an adversary force. Because if they're trying to fight a ground force only, then they will mass in a concentrated formation because that's the best capability against a ground force. But when you mass and concentrate, it makes it an easy target from the air. And so now it forces them to disperse, which is less of a capable force for ground combat. And so now they can't disperse because it's not good for the ground, but they can't concentrate because they'll get taken out by the air. And I think that an F-16 providing air superiority is going to create those kind of conundrums and difficulties for the Russian forces on the ground. Hmm. Now, we think of the F-16 as being a fourth generation fighter. How would its effectiveness be against Russian air adversaries? Yeah, so everything that I know about the similar capabilities on the eastern side is that now you've got advanced capabilities and avionics that is far more capable than what Russia is employing in Ukraine. And it also typically comes with Western weapons and Western supply lines, which tend to be far more effective than those from the east. And so I think that one-on-one, this is going to be a more capable aircraft than those that Russia has in this fight. But I think it also provides those added benefits of Western weapons and supply lines that will be good for the sustainability for the long term for Ukraine. Now, where are these F-16s likely to come from, from our NATO partners? Yeah, so Max, you were 
exactly right earlier on when you said that it doesn't mean that now either we're going to just produce more F-16s and provide it to them, or that these countries that have F-16s could have done this on their own before we gave the approval. There's something called third-party transfer, which is a requirement anytime we give or sell a weapon system that that country now that has that weapon system can't just do whatever they want with it. And if they're going to provide it to an additional country, it's got to come through our approval process. Now, the good news for Ukraine is that there's 5,000 or so F-16s in the world. Specifically, there are seven partner countries in Europe that currently fly F-16s, and four of those are actively transitioning their forces from F-16s to F-35s. So I believe that that means that there's a excess in supply of F-16s in the short term. We're not going to produce new F-16s for them. We're unlikely as the United States to give up those that we currently have because we don't have an excess. But I think countries like Belgium and Denmark and the Netherlands have F-16s they're looking to transition away from. And those are likely the sources of supply that will ultimately go to Ukraine. Now, do they have different block numbers so that these planes are, are perhaps you know dissimilar across those those countries? There is some differences, and I think as a part of our approval process, we will, one, try to standardize the avionics capability that is being provided to Ukraine for the ease of their operability and sustainability, but also to cover down on some of those capabilities that maybe we wouldn't want them to have, especially because these planes could fall into Russian hands in the worst case of them getting shot down over Russian-controlled territory. So I think we as the United States, as a part of this transfer process, will do our best to standardize and to some extent make sure that some of those more advanced capabilities uh, are not a part of those capabilities that we give in these F-16s to Ukraine. Hmm. Also on the is- issue of where might these come from, I've, I've seen some people suggest that some could come out of the uh, the boneyard in the U.S. Now, I know a lot of them have been converted to target aircraft, so I don't know what the availability is of F-16s in the boneyard these days, but is that a possibility too, do you think? For the longer term, that's a possibility, but that's going to take time and money because those aircraft are packaged up in a way to sit in the boneyard, and it takes time to reverse that process. And so I think the faster process is to take those excess F-16s from those partners that are transitioning to F-35 and use those at least as the initial tranche of aircraft for Ukraine. Okay. Well, let's think about training, and we can start with pilot training. Uh, I've seen that a number of uh, different countries have uh, offered the possibility of providing training to, to Ukraine. Are any of those pilots, any of those Ukraine pilots being trained already, or was this something that would have to start, do you know? There's a little bit of a mixed answer to that question. We, a few months ago, did a few-week trial with skilled Ukrainian pilots in F-16 simulators in the United States to get a sense of how long it would take for those experienced combat pilots in Ukraine to transition to the F-16. We initially would have said six-plus months in order to do so. And they were so skilled and so capable that we have revised our estimate to something four months or less to take these experienced pilots and to train them to be combat ready in the F-16. Interesting. And the aircraft that they're used to flying, of course, are Russian or Soviet era airplanes, right? It is. And so the actual stick and rudder of flying an F-16 wouldn't take much time at all to learn, but it's more of how do you now incorporate this Western avionics 
an employee using that avionics in a way that is combat relevant and capable. And so that is what probably the majority of the training will be, will be for that type of avionics and Western weapons that will be incorporated on the F-16s. And I I sort of have the impression of uh, fighter pilots, uh, you know, having the ability to assess unusual situations or unexpected situations and uh, come out of it surviving. Sometimes that requires creativity, maybe sometimes um, just lots of training and experience. Uh, are, are, I, I think I kind of know the answer to this question, but are we or would we be in a sense setting up the Ukrainian pilots to be at maybe more risk than a U.S. F-16 pilot or a NATO F-16 pilot? So I think in part they and us would be a little bit okay with that. They're in the middle of a war that they are very much um, motivated to learn quickly, but also to accept some level of risk, maybe more so than a Western pilot in a peacetime environment would be willing to accept. But I think ultimately, because these Ukrainian pilots have experienced some extreme combat conditions in the last 15 months and survived, that they likely are extremely skilled and experienced, such that they like we demonstrated in this trial, would learn quickly and be able to provide uh, safe capability and effective capability very quickly, much more so than maybe we would have expected before this trial. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine that if I was defending my homeland, I, I would be highly motivated to uh, you know, be successful at that. Uh, so uh, training for pilots. And um, so do we think that this might occur in different countries? Yeah, so I think it makes the most sense to use some of the F-16 experience we have resident in those seven countries in Europe and stand up a center of training excellence, not just for the pilots, but for the maintainers as well. There's a couple of F-16 units from the United States and Europe. They could play a part. There's also a wing in Tucson, Arizona, that specializes in training foreign partners in the F-16. And I highly recommend that they would be a part of this center of excellence. But I actually think that standing up that type of capability fulfills a requirement that has long been unmet to have a training location outside of the United States that's a center of excellence for F-16s. And so I think for the short term, it would be the right answer for Ukraine. But I think for the long term, maybe to train other partners there as well. Hmm. And of course, uh, you mentioned the support uh, the support people. Uh, probably there are more functions involved in, in you know, successfully fielding an F-16 than I'm probably aware of. Maybe you can mention some of those kind of categories of, of functions that are going to require training. So, Max, that's a great question. And I don't know who said it, but somebody wise said that operations is for amateurs and logistics is for professionals. And so if you think about the amount of capability required not to fly an F-16, but to get it airborne and sustain it airborne on a regular basis. We're talking about a base and facilities. We're talking about fuels and other consumables. We're talking about weapons. We're talking about parts. We're talking about manuals. We're talking about base defense and air defense capability over that base, because these are going to be extremely juicy targets for the Russians to try to take out. And so I think that Before we rush into anything, we've got to make sure that we have the entire package of capability provided for and to the Ukrainians so that this isn't just a good idea that expires once they get the capability and can't turn a wheel, but it's something that they can sustain for the long term. I'm thinking uh, that each of those things 
being available now, sort of sitting on a shelf somewhere figuratively, but do they all exist as a package? You know, is is there an integration required of all of these different aspects that has to be created? In other words, you know, to continue the on-the-shelf analogy, there, there's no complete package on the shelf that you can say, okay, take this, and then you can, you know, move that over here to this, um, in this case, a, a new country, or a new operator of the aircraft, and it includes all of those things. Does that exist? It doesn't, Max, especially when it comes to the basing and the facilities. Those are things that typically take years to make sure we plan out properly to Mm. provide this capability. But when it comes to the things that touch the aircraft, that not only are there experienced maintainers and support personnel in those militaries I described, but the contractor has support personnel that often augments F-16 units. And like when I was in Iraq, they had Iraqi F-16 maintainers and pilots, but they also had a pretty substantial base and aircraft support package that helped them maintain that capability. And I suspect at a premium price that they would need to augment their own personal capability as Ukrainians with some of these support contractors to help them along the way. Do the um, required airfields, runways exist in Ukraine, or would there have to be some changes made? I, I think they have bases that they've been flying out of, Max, but I think that we just need to make sure that not only do they have these runways and these bases, but now these bases are outfitted, one, to support an F-16, but also to allow mobility or protection of these F-16s against inbound missile strikes. That includes base defense on the perimeter, but also air defense for inbound missiles that are likely. And maybe you would put them underneath an umbrella of something like in Patriot, where you base these aircraft. Uh, But then you would also need to make sure that you've got camouflage, concealment, and deception capabilities. You've got an operational security plan so that the Russians don't necessarily know that this is the place they can attack to hit all of the squadrons of F-16s that exist. And so there's going to need to be some site surveys intentionally um, prepared for an F-16 or a variety of places for these F-16s to take some of those considerations into account before we base them there. Yeah, it's clear that this is no small task and that no single military system kind of exists in isolation. You've got all of the, the support, the protection, all of the things that you just you just mentioned. Is it doable? I mean, is this uh, is this realistic? Yeah, so Max, there is something that when we provide capability to any foreign partner ally that is a part of our fundamental characteristics when we do so, and it's called the total package approach, which means that we intentionally consider all of these things, but it doesn't just happen overnight. It takes a while to make sure that you've got all of the elements in place. But it also means that once you get this capability, We are part of your asset, either reach back or in theater, that can help you make sure that these aren't just aircraft, like I said, that show up and sit on the ramp, but that they can use them day in and day out and night in and night out. It's going to take some work. Uh, I think the training pieces via that center of excellence for support personnel and pilots makes a lot of sense. But it also means that very quickly, we've got to make sure that we get people in place to consider some of these other elements that you described. But I think if you look at the analogy of things like Patriots and Abrams, which are less complex than an F-16, but still more advanced than the things that the Ukrainians had previously, 
we wrung our hands a little bit before providing them those capabilities, thinking that there was the same type of problems about not just effectiveness in operations, but supportability. And they have brilliantly overcome those with the West's help. And I suspect that with a motivated force of Ukrainians and now a presidential directive to make sure that we do this and that we do this right, that I think that we can get to success in the order of something like six months from now. The Ukrainian people continue to amaze me in many different ways. Uh, it's unfortunate for, well, certainly for them that um, it's come to what it has, um, but they really do seem to be a um, strong, motivated, you know, fantastic, uh, fantastic people. All right. Well, this is this is really interesting. I think it is clear that the uh, the issues, the complexities are pretty significant. Are are there other things that uh, you see or that you think about that you haven't seen others consider in putting all of this together? Yeah. So, Max, I don't think that the things I'm going to share with you are things that nobody is thinking about or talking about, but they're things that we need to consider. And I think the first one is the president's commitment that these aircraft will not be used to strike targets in Russia. I don't think that's a problem. I think Zelensky has had these types of restrictions or constraints in other capabilities we provided thus far. And I think he has been disciplined in honoring those commitments. I think in part he's been disciplined because he knows that at some point he could outwear his welcome and the West would be so dissatisfied that we would stop providing these types of capabilities. And so I just think that we should keep an eye on that, and I know that we will, and uh, to make sure that Zelensky honors those types of commitments. I think related to that is that the Russians are already starting to bluster about how this is an escalation and it might drag NATO into the war against Russia. He's also said that type of thing before with Abrams or Leopard Tanks or Patriots, and I think it's just a deterrence game from Putin that he would love to stop this capability flowing into Ukraine, or he would love to slow it down. And I think that has been successful for him up to this point. It did take 15 months for us to make this policy reversal to ultimately provide F-16s to Ukraine, in part because Putin has threatened things that have caused us to pause. But I do think that this is hollow bluster. I don't think there's anything substantially different about F-16s than some of the other advanced capabilities we provided with respect to the decision matrix of escalation in the mind of Putin. And so I think those are just some of the things that we will have to continue to be resolute as we provide this capability and support, realizing that Russia would love to deter us from not doing it or slowing down in our attempts to do it. Uh, and then just to make sure these assets are used within the parameters that have been prescribed by the president. All right. Uh, you know, John, it, it always um, makes me wonder when I'm talking with a, uh, a former Air Force pilot, um, someone who's got a lot of hours flying a lot of interesting aircraft, and then that comes to an end. Uh, do you do you miss flying, or do you still have an opportunity to uh, to fly? Max, I love flying, and I loved my career in the Air Force flying those 38 different types of aircraft. I am not current and qualified. Uh, as my kids were growing up, I did a little bit of civil aviation flying. My commitment to them was that I would take them flying every three years of their life. 
to make sure if there was a spark that I could fan that fan that spark mm. uh, or to ignite a spark. My oldest daughter wants to be a fighter pilot like her dad and is an ROTC at Baylor. Nice. And we'll see if that plays out. Um, I am, for the first time, going to Oshkosh this year. Oh, good. I've never been before, so I have a little bit more free time, and that maybe is going to get me back into at least the bug uh, as I see all of that awesome aviation to fly again. Uh, but right now I'm not flying and I don't have any plans to immediately, but something like Oshkosh could turn the tide in my mind. Oh, yes. It, and uh, try to try to budget as much time for that, as many days for that as you can. It's just a spectacular experience. And if uh, at some point you get a little bit, well, overwhelmed or the level of activity is starting to kind of wear you down a little bit, um, try to get over to the seaplane base, which is a a bus ride. Um, they provide the bus um, for a completely different kind of Oshkosh experience, one that's that's you know quiet and peaceful and and serene, um, but still lots of airplanes over there. Now I'm going to check that out. I actually flew a seaplane once during test pilot school, an old 1950s Albatross, and it was the weirdest thing in the world coming into land and not putting down my landing gear. Uh, but, uh, but no, I would love to get over there and see what's going on on that side of the air show as well. Yeah. And of course, I'm always excited about a pilot who's flown the F-22 because that's, that's my favorite. I think of all of the, uh, demonstration teams at air shows, uh, the, the F-22 demonstration team is the one that impresses me the most. And, and I, I remember the first time, um, I think it might've been in New York. I'm not sure which air show it was, but there was, uh, the um, I think it was New York, the F-22 demonstration team. And I'm standing in the crowd, and there are some uh, folks standing next to me who turned out were, you know, were pilots. And as we were watching the, the flight of the F-22, one of them turned to the other one and said, airplanes can't do that. Just amazing. Yeah, it does things that airplanes should not be able to do. Yeah. And I feel a little bit bad for the Thunderbirds when they're at the same air show as the Raptor demo. Because I think the demo steals the show as impressive as the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds are. Yes. Uh, and if you think about that capability, it's probably only the third most impressive characteristic of that aircraft, the maneuverability. And those other two, the stealth and the integrated avionics, are even more impressive than that. Wow. Very nice. And so these days, um, your activities, you do some, um, some speaking uh, at events, and, and you've written a, lot of, uh, a number of articles, I see. Yeah, Max, I appreciate that. I am very intentional about this phase of my life and trying to use the experience and the skill sets that I've had to benefit people and to benefit our country. I do some keynote speaking. I have a website, uh, johntykert.com, that you can book me for that. And I love developing the type of leaders that our nation needs. And that's really the intent of that part of my portfolio. I do some consulting. I'm actually writing a book about my experience commanding Edwards Air Force Base. Oh. And I look forward to seeing how that will all play out. But I'm doing some dabbling right now because I've got the time to do so. But it really is hopefully building up to something that will enable me to make an oversized impact on people in our country back in federal public service down the road. Great. You'll have to let us know when the uh, when the book is publishing and we'll we'll have you back on. It's a long road, Max. I don't know if you've written a book. You know, if, if it comes out a, a year from now, I'll feel blessed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you think it's going to come out a year from now, it'll probably be two. But yeah, these things take a long, a long time. 
And so um, the website, uh, John Teichert, is T-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, so johnteichert.com. And we've been speaking with retired Brigadier General John Dragon Teichert. Thank you so much for helping us understand some of these issues related to providing F-16s to Ukraine. And, of course, thank you so much for your service to the country. Now, thanks for being a fellow pilot. I've loved my time with you, Max, and thanks for having me. All right. Take care. You too. Visit AirplaneGeeks.com for show notes, a list of past guests, and biographies of all the hosts, current and past. We even have a donation link where you can help support the show. The direct link to this episode's show notes is AirplaneGeeks.com slash 751. And you can reach us via email at thegeeks at AirplaneGeeks.com. And if you'd like to get an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write us at the same email address, thegeeks at AirplaneGeeks.com. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.